turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. These things happened as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written down, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Verse 11 and verse 6 tell us that the Old Testament account of the Exodus was written for our instruction. What happened to Israel was written to teach us. In what way? In Scripture, Egypt is a figure of the world. I take it most of you have heard that. Egypt is a figure of the world. Pharaoh is a picture of Satan, the god of the world. He's also a type or a shadow of the Antichrist to come. The Egyptians deified him and worshipped him as God. So Egypt is a picture of the world. Satan is a picture of Pharaoh, is a picture of Satan, the god of the world. And as Moses made a covenant with blood and brought the children of Israel out of Egypt through the water into the promised land, is a picture of the way that Jesus makes a covenant with blood, the blood of the Lamb, and leads us out of the world through baptism into heaven. One is a picture of the other. The exodus of the Jews is a picture of our salvation, coming out of the world, entering into the promised land. But in between coming out of Egypt and entering into the promised land, they sojourned in the wilderness for a generation of 40 years. And so too, sandwiched in between coming out of the world and going into heaven, we have a sojourning in this life and in this world. The sojourning in the wilderness is the picture of the believer's journey in this life. We've come out of the world, as it were, out of Egypt, but we've not yet entered the promised land, not yet gone to heaven. We have to understand this even further. It's also a picture of the last days. When they came out of Egypt, they had to bring Joseph's bones with them because the dead in Christ rise first. The same judgments we see in the book of Exodus are replayed or recapitulated in the book of Revelation. They happen again. These judgments are commemorated to this day in the Jewish Passover Seder with the judgments, Dam, Blood, Svadaya, Frogs, Hoshek, Darkness. These same judgments come back again in the book of Revelation. The way that Pharaoh had his musicians, his magicians, Pharaoh's magicians, counterfeited the miracles of Moses and Aaron is a picture of the way the Antichrist and false prophet are going to imitate the miracles of Jesus and his witnesses. One is a picture of the other. Coming out of Egypt is a picture of the rapture and resurrection, 
Again, they bring Joseph's bones with them. The dead in Christ rise first. It's a picture of the rapture. So it teaches about our salvation, but it teaches about our ultimate salvation, our delivery from the world. The Exodus is a picture of what happens when we come to Christ, but also what happens when Christ comes again to take us out of here. Much hinges on the Exodus, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10. It's an example for us, something for us to learn from. Now there's much more we can say about this subject, but in a nutshell, Egypt is a picture of the world, Pharaoh's a picture of Satan, and Moses foreshadows Christ. The Jews believed that the Messiah would be a prophet like Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. The Messiah would be a prophet like Moses. Moses gave a covenant, so the Messiah would give a new covenant. Let's understand how this works. Look at Deuteronomy, please, chapter 18. Verse 18, I'll raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. The rabbis understand that this prophecy of Moses is about the Messiah. The Messiah would be in the character of Moses. And you see this repeatedly in the Gospels. Why did Jesus walk on the water and bring the apostles out of a storm? Well, the Gospels are trying to show Jesus as a second Moses, the way Moses led the people out of calamity through the water. Why does it say in John's Gospel, when Jesus fed the 5,000, the place was desolate? Because it's trying to show Jesus as a Moses figure. Moses fed the people supernaturally in the wilderness. It's always trying to show Jesus in the character of Moses. Only Moses gave the first covenant, Jesus would give a new covenant. Look with me, please, to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers. Here the new covenant is predicted directly. New covenant. In Hebrew, I will make, literally, I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. With whom would the new covenant be made? With the church? With the Baptists? With the Presbyterians? With the Pentecostals? No. The new covenant was made with Israel and the Jews. The church has no covenant. The new covenant was made with the Jews. Romans 11 tells us that Jews who reject Jesus are cut off from their own olive tree, and non-Jews, people who are not Jewish, who accept Jesus, are grafted in in their place. Believing Gentiles replace unbelieving Jews, but the church never replaces Israel. The new covenant was to be made with the Jews. Look at Romans chapter 9, please. Paul writing about the Jews, who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the Torah, the law, 
and the temple services and the promises, who are Israelites, to whom belongs. In Greek, this is present continuous active. To whom belongs, not the covenant, but it's plural. The word is covenants. It's plural. Both covenants, the old and the new, both belong to the Jews. The new covenant does not belong to the church. The church is the natural continuation of Israel. Non-Jews, people who are not Jewish, who believe in Jesus and are born again, benefit from the new covenant made with the Jews. They benefit from it but it wasn't made with them. The New Testament and the Old Testament both say the New Covenant was made with Israel and the Jews. Non-Jews are incorporated into it. They're grafted in. But it all goes back to Moses. This one who would bring the children of Israel out of Egypt into the Promised Land. But for a whole generation, they had to sojourn in the wilderness. Forty years. In biblical typology, 40 is the number of divine testing. Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Moses fasted 40 days. It rained 40 days in the story of the epic of Noah. King David confronted Goliath 40 days before he slew him. And so the children of Israel sojourned 40 years in the wilderness. 40 is the number of divine testing. It's always 40. And the second generation enters the promised land, not the first. Only the new creation can go to heaven, not the old one. <laughs> okay. That's what it means. Okay. Okay. Even Moses couldn't enter until Jesus came. Moses represents the law, and the law can't save. The law could only teach us about our need for salvation. Okay. Moses couldn't enter the promised land until Jesus came. It was 2,000 years later. We see Moses walking with Jesus in the promised land on the Mount of Transfiguration, but he couldn't go into the land until the Messiah came. The law could not save. The law could only teach about our need for salvation. There's much we can say about these things. But Joshua is a picture of Christ. Jesus' name in Hebrew, Yeshua, is simply the way people said Joshua, Yehoshua, after the Babylonian captivity. It's the same name. Sort of like John and Johan. <laughs> okay. Same name. They simply said it differently at different times. And the tribes passed under Joshua's rod as we looked at the other night. Christians will come before the judgment seat of Christ when we claim our reward. So we have this sojourning in the wilderness. And the tragic history of what happened to Israel in the wilderness is written so we as Christians would not make the same mistakes as Israel did in the Exodus. With this in view, turn with me, please, to the book of Exodus. Chapter 15. Let's actually look at chapter 14, verse 28. We'll begin at chapter 14, verse 28. 
And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on the dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The judgment of Pharaoh and his army is a picture of the judgment of Satan. When we come out of the world, Satan comes after us. Same as Pharaoh pursued the children of Israel. Only ultimately, the Lord destroys him. Then in chapter 15, verse 1, Moses and the sons of Israel sang the song of the Lord and said, I will sing unto the Lord, he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea, the Lord my God, my strength, my song, also has become my salvation. This is the song of Moses. And we're told in the book of Revelation that we will sing it in heaven. Why will we sing this in heaven? This song that was led by Miriam with her tambourine. We will sing it in heaven because the Exodus is a picture of what will happen when Jesus comes back. Satan will be destroyed and we will be rescued out of here. The Exodus is a picture of the rapture and resurrection of the church. Satan will be destroyed. We will sing the same song in heaven. What happened then is a foreshadowing of what happens now and what will happen in the future. So we come out of Egypt. When we come out of Egypt, everybody's happy when they're first saved. Everybody. Verse 21 of chapter 15. Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, he's highly exalted. The horse and the rider has hurled into the sea. Verse 20, Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing. Everybody was happy. They were singing and dancing and clapping and banging on their tambourines. Much to celebrate. The Lord has saved us from Pharaoh. The Lord has delivered us from Egypt. We're on our way to the promised land. Hallelujah. That's the way they were. That's the way we are. When we're first saved, when we're first born again, if you're truly born again, you're related. You've met Jesus. You've been saved. You know you've been saved. You've been delivered from the power of death. You're no longer making bricks for Pharaoh. You're no longer a slave to sin, to the God of this world. You're on your way to heaven. Everybody's happy. Pick up a tambourine, sing and dance and rejoice. Nothing wrong with that. We have much to celebrate. However, what happens next? Verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they'd come to Merah, they could not drink the waters of Merah, for they were bitter. Therefore it was named Merah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? <laughs> Jesus gives us the parable of the sower and the seed. The seed may be sown, but as soon as the cares of this life 
begin to oppose us, the seed is choked off. The new creation is attacked. Or the seed of the word doesn't grow properly. When you're first saved, we have much to be happy about. But before too long in your walk with Jesus, you realize, yes, you've come out of Egypt, but there may be a considerable distance to the promised land. You realize you're in a wilderness. A wilderness is by nature a place of death. Let me tell you what the Sinai looks like. The Sinai is not like the Sahara. It's not a bleak, sandy desert. It's more like, a little bit like, the mesas of the American Southwest in, say, New Mexico. Actually, much of the Sinai is quite pretty, scenic, multicolored rocks, the way the sun reflects from it. But it is hot. And there are scorpions, there are vipers, and vultures literally swarm around anything moving, waiting for something or someone to die. It's a place of death. I did some training in the Israeli army. My son's in the Israeli army. And when you're in the desert in Israel, you carry more weight in water than you do in bullets. You have to drink a quart of water an hour and take salt tablets not to dehydrate. Well, it's a place of death. It's not an easy place to be. After you've been saved a while, you begin to have trials, testings. Things get difficult. Where's the joy? Where is the jubilation? Where is the excitement you had when you were first saved? Now that things get tough. Where is God when you need him? Now everything seems to be going wrong. Things are getting difficult in the wilderness. And what people tend to do is grumble. They go three days. Three days in the Bible usually alludes to the resurrection typologically in some way. But they go three days and there's no water. That is a long time to go in a desert with no water. This is serious now. This is quite serious. Danger of heat stroke. Danger of dehydration. They're pushed to their absolute limit. Three days is about as long as somebody can go in the wilderness without water, without dying. God will sometimes let us be pushed to the limit. And they get pushed to the limit. But then they find water. The water is called Merah, Merah. Merah, however, is the Hebrew word for bitterness, bitter stagnant, contaminated water with a bitter taste to it. It is where you get the name Miriam. The real name of the mother of Jesus was not Mary. In Hebrew, it would have been Miriam. Mary is a westernization of 
Miriam. Her real name would have been Miriam. Same as the name of Moses' sister. What you have here in the Hebrew text is a word play. Miriam has the tambourine and she's celebrating and dancing. But her own name means bitterness. Remember the prophecy given by Simeon to marry the mother of Jesus, that a sword will pierce your own heart. She's very joyous that the Messiah has been born as her son, but she's warned that bitterness will follow. Mera Miriam. Now, if you want to know about a ridiculous, stupid, idiotic religion that nobody in their right mind should believe unless they're a moron, it's called Islam. If you can believe it, the Koran says that Miriam, the sister of Moses, and Miriam, the mother of Jesus, are the same woman, despite the fact that they lived 1,300 years apart. The Koran is a ridiculous, stupid book. The only thing more preposterous than the Koran are the poor souls bamboozled into believing such a specimen of nonsense. No, they lived 13 centuries apart. You see, they had a tremendous need. They were being pushed to the limit at an early point in their sojourn through the wilderness. But when they finally thought God met the need, oh, thank God, water, thank God, water, it was undrinkable. It was poison. It was bitter. It was rife with bacteria. It was undrinkable. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's more dark at the end of the tunnel, then comes the light. The worst bit of a trial is always at the end of it, before the breakthrough. <coughs> like having a baby, birth pangs. It's the last big push, is the worst. And so it is. You think God has met the need. You think you found what you need. You think the blessing has come. You think God has made the provision. But the water is undrinkable. A letdown. A disappointment. What are we going to do now? What do Christians tend to do when they're up against the wall, when they've gone through a very difficult patch, when the time of joy and happiness they had is followed by a very heavy time of trials, they're really up against opposition, and then when it seems like the breakthrough has come, it's not the breakthrough at all. Most people do what the children of Israel did in verse 24. They grumbled at Moses. Moses was a shepherd of Midian. The Hebrew word for shepherd is ro'e, ro'e, the one who sees. One who sees the sheep, ro'e. Psalm 23 in Hebrew, Adonai ro'e, literally Yahweh ro'e. Yahweh is my shepherd. Greek episcopal, episcopal. Both ro'e and episcopal not only mean shepherd, they mean pastor. 
When things go wrong, people blame the pastor. Moses was a shepherd of Midian. They turn on the church leadership. Blame him. He's the one who got us into this mess. They can't see God. They're now walking as carnal men and women. So they want to see a target that they can identify with their natural eyes. Aim for the pastor. Aim for the deacons. Aim for the leadership. Blame them. They've got us into this. Now you understand why the Bible says, let the leaders, let the shepherds, let the pastors, let the Episcopos be tested. What equipped Moses to lead a whole nation of 1.5 million adults, plus their children and cattle and some Egyptian stragglers, etc.? What equipped him to lead all these people through that wilderness for 40 years? Because he'd been 40 years in that same exact wilderness himself as a shepherd of Midian, looking after Jethro's sheep. He spent 40 years in that wilderness himself. That is why young believers should never be put in positions of leadership in a church. Newly saved people should not be put in positions of leadership. They haven't been around the block enough times. When things get tough, the tough get going. But these people are not as tough as they think they are. You have to have spent time in the wilderness to be tough. Young believers cannot be put into Now, young, I don't necessarily mean in terms of age. I mean in terms of how long they've been saved. Do not let a young convert, a young believer, come into a position of leadership. It's wrong. It's not biblical. They get into spiritual pride and they mess up. The word for elder literally means an older one. Zaken in Hebrew. But let's look at this. The pastor, the leader, becomes the obvious target. It's God's hand, it's God's leading, it's God's direction, but you turn on the pastor. That's what people tend to do in churches. But we're told by Paul that this was written for our instruction that we would not do those things. Let's look. Then he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters... And the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and a regulation, and there he tested them. And he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I'll put none of these diseases on you which I put on the Egyptians, for I the Lord am your God. And so the shepherd goes to the Lord. Leadership is a lonely position to be in. Nobody knows what it's like. The Lord may have put you in a situation, but as far as the people are concerned, <laughs> you put them in the situation. And so the pastor goes before the Lord. And the Lord sees what's happening, sees the people grumbling, understands Moses' predicament, 
and shows him a tree. Second Timothy tells us what it's like to be a pastor. Read the end of Second Timothy. You're not able to love people who turn against you after you've given your guts for them. <laughs> you shouldn't be a pastor. <laughs> the Lord shows him a tree. Another lesson in Hebrew. The Hebrew word for tree is etz. Etz. But etz is also the Hebrew word for anything that is made from a tree. In other words, it's the Hebrew word for wood. It's also the Hebrew word for, in modern Hebrew, for a pencil. Generic term. A tree growing in the ground, that's an eights. This is eights. Anything made from a tree is eights. The Torah, the law, says, cursed is everyone who hangs on and eats. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus hung on a tree. He was accursed of God for our sins, pierced for our transgression. When the waters get bitter, when you get to a situation where Your desperate circumstances have only been followed by disappointment. There's only one cure. Bitterness will automatically tend to set in. Bitterness will automatically tend to permeate our souls. We all have an old creation. The Lord has brought you through some difficult circumstances. And then instead of his provision, you find a false provision, a disappointment, a letdown. Bitterness tends to set in. What is the cure for the bitterness? What is the cure for the poison? What is it that takes a disappointment and turns it into a blessing? It is the eights. It is, cursed is everyone who hangs on an eights. It is the cross of Jesus. The only cure is the cross. Nothing any of us go through is not something he has not already gone through before us and on our behalf. When you face the heartbreaks, the disappointments of this life. Sojourning in this wilderness. Remember, take your eyes off the heartbreak. Take your eyes off the disappointment. Put your eyes on the cross. The bitterness will not take root. 
the last thing you want is a root of bitterness. It is fine for us to be embittered against Satan and his devices. But that's it. We should not even be embittered against unsaved people who wrong us. What they have done to themselves is far worse than anything we could ever dream up for them. They're on their way to hell unless they repent and get saved. Even the most unspeakable people who've done the most unspeakable things. When I watch the news and I see these people who abduct and rape children and these things, I just want to string them up. Well, there must be justice. But even if there isn't, they will face God's justice. There is nothing we can do to any unsaved person, to anyone, that will come near what they've done to themselves. Vengeance is the Lord's. You see, God is not concerned about the unsaved except seeing them get saved. He's concerned about those who've been saved. Most of the time, at least much of the time, unsaved people will have a good life in this world. They're making bricks for Pharaoh. <laughs> They're on their way to eternal damnation. Christians tend to struggle in this world. Everybody has a cross. If you have money, you're going to struggle with something else. You have a good family relationship, you're going to struggle with money. <laughs> You've got good health, you're going to struggle with relationships. Everybody is going to have a cross, which we will exchange one day for a crown. If we didn't have the cross, we would wind up the same as the unsaved we would wind up hoping and trusting in a fallen world where there is no future other than perdition. One day, we won't need the cross. Right now, the only way to cope with the bitterness of life is the cross. The cross makes the bitter sweet. It's the cross that can make you love an unloving wife. It's the cross that can make you love an unloving husband. It's the cross that can make you forgive bad parents and make bad parents forgive not-so-good children. It's the cross that helps us forgive other believers who've wronged us. It's always the cross, and only the cross, that can make the bitter sweet. But let's continue. What happens next? All right, hallelujah, we've learned the lesson the Lord wanted us to learn. But we read in verse 25, there he tested them. As we pointed out the other day when we looked at the story of Queen Esther, when God tests us, it's never to find out if we are going to be faithful. God already knows if we're going to be faithful. He wants us to know and others to know. He already knows. But when we fail a test, it's inevitable virtually that we go through it again. And we keep going through it until we get it right. All right, Lord, I learned what you wanted me to learn. I shouldn't have grumbled. 
I shouldn't have gotten angry at the leadership. I shouldn't have been the way I was when the water was bitter. I've learned what you wanted me to learn. Now I see your faithfulness. I understand the deeper work of the tree, of the eights, of the cross. And God says, good. Glad to hear it. I'll see you Tuesday. Let's continue. <coughs> and he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord in verse 26, your God, do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I'll put none of these diseases on you. If you will give earnest heed to keep all his commandments, as the pastor has been reading from Psalm 119. If you hold faithfully to the teachings of God's word. Then they came to Elim in verse 27. There were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms, and they camped there next to the waters. Understand why the 12 and the 70. Again, the sojourning through the wilderness is a type of the church, isn't it? The church begins with the 12 and the 70. It begins with the bitterness of Miriam. It begins with the cross. And it begins with the 12 and 70. It's a type. It's a foreshadowing of the church's sojourn in this world. There are places of refreshing in the wilderness of this life. We are reminded we've come out of the promised land, uh, out of Egypt, and we're on our way to the promised land. Turn with me, please, to the book of Numbers, chapter 11. Verse 4. And the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who'll give us meat to eat? We remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing to look at except this manna. It was not just the rabble, the stragglers, even the Egyptians. Some Egyptians came out with them, we're told. Even the sons of Israel got caught up in this. God's own people they begin to long for the things they had in Egypt. The old creation longs for the things we had in the world. Cocaine, sexual immorality, those would be the things I had. For you, it might have been other things. doesn't matter what it was. Egypt looks good to us when you're in the wilderness. The world seems to have everything. Well, in a sense, it does. The only difference is they can't take it with them. For them, life ends at the grave. Then the trouble begins. For us, life begins at the grave. There, the trouble ends. Forever is a long time. I'm often reminded of the words of the American missionary who was martyred in 
South America, Brother Jim Elliott. No man is a fool who gives up what he cannot possibly keep in order to gain what he cannot possibly lose. Boy, did he know what he was talking about. He's one man I look forward to meeting. Nobody is a fool who gives up what they cannot possibly keep in order to gain what they cannot possibly lose. Jeremiah, King David, they all realized, why do the wicked prosper? <laughs> the world's going to have it good. Satan will give them anything to keep them in the world. But Pharaoh doesn't want us leaving. The problem is, for him, we left. Don't go back there. Woe to those who go down to Egypt, Isaiah says. Don't turn around and go back there. But let's continue in Exodus 16. Then they set out from Elam. And all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which does not mean the word Sin. It's just a Middle Eastern name. Which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. And once more, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Once more, they fail the test, they go through it again. Only the next time, it's even more difficult. And once again, they turn on the leaders. They want a visible target. We were better off in Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'll rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. And it will come about on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. This manna was God's physical provision. But John 6 tells us it's a picture of Jesus, the incarnate word, the manna. Let's understand about sojourning through the wilderness. God gave them everything they needed to get from point A to point B. But it took 40 years. Just like the story of Esther. It's a fixed distance from point A to point B. There is nothing you can do to make it take any shorter of a time. But there's always a whole lot we can do to slow it down. If you were going from Memphis to Nashville, Lord help you. It's a fixed distance. There's nothing you can do to make it go any faster. However, if you take a detour... <laughs> 
you take the scenic route. <laughs> take a lot longer. Without breaking the speed limit, to go from one end of Tennessee to the eastern end, it takes about eight hours from the Mississippi to the Virginia state line. It takes about eight hours. You can't make it go any faster, but you sure can make it take 18 hours. The wilderness is not a pleasant place, but it is a deceitful place. Remember, it's not like the Sahara. The Sinai, much of it is pretty. It has a scenic lure to it. It looks harmless. It looks entertaining. But it's by nature a place of death. Heat stroke, dehydration, venomous serpents and insects. It's a place of death. The world is like that. We're sojourning. <laughs> We're sojourning. But there's still a lure to this place. God gave them everything they needed to get through the wilderness. Sometimes there were miracles, signs and wonders, what we call in Hebrew, nesim v'niflaot. Other times there were not. They went through times of victory and times of disappointment. They went through times of refreshing at Elam, but also times of considerable hardship. But God gave them everything they needed. What did he give them? First of all, he gave them his own presence. He gave them himself in the ark. The ark was again made of wood and gold because Jesus is both human and divine. Those two angels are the angels that are with him in his ascension and so forth and resurrection. Inside was the law and the mercy seat, the throne of grace covers the law. You have the Shekinah. When the Shekinah came down, he himself was present. He went before them. Jesus will lead us nowhere. He doesn't go before us. His spirit leads us no place where he doesn't go first, where he hasn't been. Second thing God gave them was his word. He gave them the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and then the other 603 commandments. He gave them his word. He gave them each other. You want to die in the wilderness, go through it by yourself. <laughs> Turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, please.
not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The closer we get to the return of Jesus, the day draws near, the more important fellowship becomes. Look at Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1. He or she, as the case may be, he who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. When you see people who are saved and they're out of fellowship, no matter what they say, no matter what their argument is, they quarrel against all sound wisdom. What they're really doing is seeking their own desire. They're seeking to gratify their old nature. No matter what they say, they're seeking to gratify their old creation. They're seeking their old desire. No matter what argument they give, they quarrel against all sound wisdom. I'm not saying what church you should go to. I'm saying if you're out of fellowship. God gave them each other. Additionally, he gave them something else. He promised he'd give Israel shepherds after his own heart. In Ezekiel 34, leadership. With those things... They were guaranteed that if they stayed together, if they followed the Lord, held to his word, went with Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb, they would enter the promised land. Our walk is no different. You and I, if you're born again, have come out of Egypt. Pharaoh has no power over us, really, not ultimately. We've been delivered by the blood of the Lamb. One day we will enter, by God's grace, the promised land. But right now we are sojourning in a wilderness. Sometimes they had victories, other times they had disappointments. You and I as Christians in this life, every Christian, every Christian family, every Christian marriage, and every Christian congregation, sometimes we will experience victories and indeed have that which to celebrate. But other times, there will be disappointments. With no cure for the bitterness except the cross. Sometimes they saw miracles, nisim v'niflaot, signs and wonders, incredible miracles, supernatural demonstrations of God's power. Sometimes you and I will see miracles. We may see healings where medical science has failed. The Lord 
miraculously prolonging, preserving the life of another believer who was diagnosed terminal. I've seen that happen lots of times. We may see these kinds of tremendous signs and wonders. We may see supernatural demonstrations of God's power, things that can be medically quantified and documented now. I'm not talking about this hocus-pocus TV evangelist. We may see that happen. Other times, there will not be signs and wonders. There will not be miracles or miraculous healings. Other believers may go to be with the Lord. Much to our sadness. But you know, we're going to have the same things. Miracles or no miracles. Victories or disappointments. Sometimes they made a lot of progress. Other times, the Shekinah didn't move. They just stayed in one place for some time. And that'll happen. There will be times, seasons, where we don't seem to be making any progress where the church doesn't seem to be going anywhere, where we don't seem to be getting anywhere, where our families don't seem to be getting anywhere. God's not moving. Well, I'll tell you one thing that I've learned over the years as a Christian. A lot of the times I thought I was waiting for God to move, he was really waiting for me to be ready for him to move. But whether he moves or not, the ark was still there. Whether or not there were signs and wonders, he was there. Whether or not there were victories, he was there. It's no different now. He is there. We have the fellowship of each other. We have the shepherds he's given us. I can tell you this. If you've been a believer any amount of time, five years, ten years, you don't need me to tell you this. You know it already. There will be seasons of blessing and times of disappointment. There will be times of victory and times of trial. Times of progress, times of stagnation. But no matter what happens, no matter what you're going through, whether or not something is happening or whether or not it isn't, irrespective of what is going on or what isn't, of one thing we may be absolutely confident. What is that? The manna falls every single day. God bless.